Hello and welcome to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast. Today, it's time for an episode of Peter Mackay's Motorbike Mutterings. It is an incredibly busy time at the moment in the motorcycle racing world, with often more than one series racing on any particular weekend. We have MotoGP at full tilt, World Superbikes and indeed British Superbikes as well. So on this episode today, we're going to talk all about what is going on in each of these championships at the moment and what can we expect for the run towards the end of the season. If you're a motorcycle racing fan like me, MotoGP usually sits at the top of the list of interest. It is the premier category of motorcycle racing in the world. It's effectively motorcycle racing's equivalent to Formula One. Pure prototype machines with arguably the best riders in the world competing on them. 1,000cc bikes with, in some cases, nearly 300 horsepower. Absolutely mind-boggling to think. We're now in an era of MotoGP where these prototype machines have ride height devices, they have hole shot devices, they have have levelling in the back tyre, they have incredibly complex electronics and aerodynamic winglets as well. uh, The world of MotoGP has kind of gone a bit crazy over the last few years, but the one thing that remains consistent is the quality of racing on show. And last weekend at the MotoGP round at Aragon in Spain, well, we had a proper grandstand showdown between, well, a bit, pretty much a young pretender and now one of the old guard, if you like, one of the more experienced riders in the MotoGP paddock. Now, how on earth did we blink and get to a point where we call Mark Marquez part of the old guard and one of the older, wiser, more experienced riders. Well, that is the reality now. Mark Marquez, the Repsol Honda uh, rider, uh, eight times world champion, six times in MotoGP, joined the championship in 2013 as a fresh-faced 20-year-old and made headlines straight away and won in his, I think, his third race at the Circuit of the Americas. And it became quite clear quite quickly that he was going to be a force to be reckoned with and nearly won that well did win the title of course in his first year in 2013 and then just went on an absolute rampage uh, from there on but the, the times have changed especially over the last couple of years in particular during this covid era if you like if we want to to call it that and of course at the when the MotoGP championship got back running again last summer uh, very much a delayed start to the MotoGP championship at Jerez Mark Marquez had a terrible accident which um, gave him an extremely difficult injury uh, in his uh, in his right elbow and put him on the sidelines for best part of a year which is a huge amount of time for a MotoGP rider it's incredible how these effectively gladiators can shake off seemingly incredibly tough injuries to get back on and just to function and go about day-to-day life is one thing but to ride a motorcycle approaching 300 horsepower weighing 185 kilograms something like that it really does boggle the mind um and that market mark marquez is just been getting himself back up to speed this season as well but he's had a few difficult difficulties in front of him to to do that but marquez is very much the now one of the more experienced riders in the field however there is a huge raft 
of young talent that have come up through Moto3 and Moto2, the feeder classes from MotoGP, and are now challenging. And the thing is, there's not just one or two challengers to worry about. There's five or six uh, at any moment. In this MotoGP season alone, we've still got, I think, five races to go. We've had eight different winners already. So the variety and the almost randomness of MotoGP at the moment is is extraordinary. And this last weekend at Aragon, it was the turn of Francesco Bagnaia, also known as Pecco Bagnaia, to score his first MotoGP win. And the 24-year-old from Turin has kind of been knocking on the door of this win for a little while. Of course, he won the Moto2 World Championship with the VR46 team, the uh, Valentino Rossi uh, Academy team, which I'm sure we'll talk about uh, in a moment. But this is Peko Bagnaia's third season in MotoGP. He had two years with the satellite uh, Ducati team, now it's called Pramac Ducati, but this is his first year in the full official factory Ducati team in the bright red colours of the Bologna factory. And when you get asked to join the factory team, even if the machinery can be the same sometimes, as the case with Ducati, they like to make sure that their satellite teams have very good equipment. But when you're in the factory team, that's when it really, really matters big time. You're under a lot more pressure, you're paid a lot more money, and you've got to deliver. And if you don't deliver, you're you're down the road. And that is something that some riders relish and some it really doesn't work for them at all. But Peko in his first season for Ducati, he's been so close, uh, for Ducati factory team I should say, he's been so close to winning on a few occasions but hasn't quite all come together for him. Um, but this race on Sunday last weekend between Mark Marquez and Peko Bagnaia, absolutely extraordinary. What was really amazing was was just how far ahead of the rest of the field they were able to go. But it was also fascinating watching the difference in abilities and the difference in style of not only the riders but their machines as well. The Ducati built in Bologna in Italy is by far, by far, the fastest bike in a straight line. It's got enormous acceleration, very, very good top end as well. And it's also very, very stable in braking. You watch a lot of the Ducati riders, they can really dive hard into the corners. The Honda, on the other hand, which Mark Marquez is uh, having to try and tame at the moment, is a little bit more of an unruly beast. The kind of Honda philosophy of Grand, Grand Prix racing has never really changed, actually, for decades for generations honda's engineers are renowned as some of the very best in the world but the way they go about things is different they tend to look at creating an absolutely apocalyptically powerful motor engine and then sort of try and build a chassis around it or hire a rider that can ride around the deficiencies of a chassis so off there if you can imagine you've got a if you were, you often see it if you're designing a character on a video game, you've got 100, uh, 100% and you can give 80% to strength and 10% to uh, speed and whatever. Honda, if they had that same 100%, they would put as much as possible into the engine and then kind of figure out the rest later on. And really, the only two riders that have been able to get anything at all out of a Honda GP motorcycle over the last decade have been Casey Stoner and Mark Marquez. And those are two riders that really 
they stand quite far apart from the rest in the way they ride a motorcycle. Very, very aggressive, very, very uncompromising. They have no problem leaning the bike over at an incredible lean angle. They you know, don't mind the bike sliding around underneath them to a point where, they, and they also don't mind as a really kind of sharp, on-edge, nervous motorcycle, which would, to be honest, scare the life out of most other riders that get onto it. But only really Mark Marquez and Casey Stoner have been able to tame these unruly Hondas and, of course, win championships. Casey Stoner won the 2011 championship at Aracanter and, of course, Mark Marquez has won six on Honda's motorcycles. So there's something, there is something there uh, in, the, in these Honda bikes. But at the moment, the bike that Mark Marquez has come back to this season uh, really is causing, uh, is really making him work very, very hard. And you can see the way he's having to ride very, very over the top, very, very aggressive. Whereas in the duel on Sunday, Peko Bagnaia on the Ducati, which does have its foibles as well. It's often known for maybe not quite being able to carry the corner speed and not quite being as, as good on the change of direction, something which the Honda is a bit better at. Um, but when the Ducati gets picked up out of the corner and the gas is opened up, it just disappears from any bike on the grid. It's not just a Honda issue. The Ducati is so far ahead. However, over a lap on Sunday, the the battle between these two guys, Peko Bagnaia and Mark Marquez, were extraordinary. And no matter how many times Mark Marquez in the closing laps of the race tried to make a move on, um, on Bagnaia, he tried at every single point in the circuit he could. And bearing in mind that Marquez has got a lot more Grand Prix under under his belt but you know Peko Bagnaia has only had 42 starts for example Marquez has had a whole lot more than that been racing in MotoGP since 2013 so he'll have well over 100 uh, MotoGP starts now but everything that Mark Marquez threw at Bagnaia Bagnaia had an answer for it he had he remained calm under the pressure and there is no greater pressure I think than a rabid Mark Marquez determined to try and pull a motorcycle which really shouldn't be fighting for wins up into the winner's circle. We saw Mark Marquez do that at his beloved Saxon ring and there's a a common feeling in the paddock that the left hand um, reverse direction, that's a not kill thing (laughs) the anti-clockwise circuits that he is, you know, these left-hand circuits are a little bit easier for him with his right arm uh, because obviously his right arm's still not 100% from what we're told. Um, but also, Mark Marquez has always been a big advocate of training on dirt track where you're always turning left and you're sliding and turning left all the time. Um, never turning right on dirt track. So that's one thing that's always been the case where any kind of anti-clockwise circuits, for whatever reason, Mark Marquez has been kind of imperious. And those have been the, the main... Uh, circuits where he's been able to to compete now of course Peko Bagnaia was able to to get the win his first in 42 MotoGP starts he brought himself up into second in the championship but still 53 points back from Fabio Quartararo which is more than two race wins you get 25 points for a race win however we've seen in the past with five races to go, anything can happen. It just takes a couple of races with strange weather conditions, one crash here, one crash there, and all of a sudden it's back on again. The only thing that Fabio Quartararo, I think, can hold, uh, he has a few things in his uh, in his toolbox. One thing is he has enormous speed, and is f- even on a bad day, he's still going to finish in the top 10 
uh, if he keeps the bike up right. But incredible speed. But also, there are so many other riders that are on the same level that it's very difficult for one rider to to win multiple races in a row. Um, so that's one thing that I think may protect Fabio Quartararo's um, lead that he built up earlier on in the season. Now, to go a little bit deeper into why, you know, this tenacity shown by Mark Marquez, let's put it into a bit of perspective. We've talked a lot about, you know, how hard it is to, to, to ride the Honda, um, but we can only we can only guess that by looking at it and trying to make an educated guess by looking at the footage on screen and hearing what the riders say. But the one thing you can look at is results. The other results from this race on Sunday at Aragon... Takaka Nakagami on the LCR Honda, the satellite Honda, but running a similar spec to the factory machines. He was the top Honda apart from Marquez, and he finished in 10th place. Alex Marquez on the other uh, LCR Honda crashed on lap one. Paul Aspargro, a rider who was on pole position just two or three weeks ago at Silverstone, and had a reasonably strong race as well, finished in the top, uh, in the top five, uh, Paulus Bargro finished 16th. So it's the same motorbike. Um, so I think that gives you a bit more of an impression of just how uh, how tough this motorcycle is to you know to get on top of. The one thing that really stands out is is the front end. The front end and the braking just looks so so tricky, and it's hard to tell what exactly is wrong. Interestingly, listening to recording this on Friday the 17th of September in the morning, just watched free practice one from Mizano and the commentators Matt Burt and Steve Day talking a lot about upcoming tests, which are absolutely crucial for HRC, for Honda Racing Corporation, to get their 2022 engine uh, out of the crate and to get testing it because... The character of an engine in the motorcycle is very important. You can create as much horsepower as you want, but if you can't put that power down, that is where things go wrong. And that's where Ducati seem to have such an advantage. Not only have they got the peak horsepower, they've also got the power delivery. So it's if, if you can imagine a light switch, you, you press it on, you press it off, that's all the control you have. But if you can imagine a dimmer switch, you, you've got all sorts of adjustment of how much light you want. A throttle is exactly the same in a motorbike, where if you have a, a throttle that you can really progressively feed in, that's going to help the rider so, so much. And that seems to be the issue that the Honda riders are really, um, really struggling with. The other issue that is maybe has been a perennial issue with Honda, and this is why Mark Marquez's achievements have been so impressive, is that if Honda have a rider that's able to ride around the issues and are able to make the most of the machine, they kind of don't have any worry about what happens to the other riders. As long as they've got their top man, the rest of the riders are kind of less, they're less important. But of course, that strategy uh, really did really did backfire when Mark Marquez was on the sidelines for the best part of the year. And what we saw during that period was a very, very barren period for Honda and in fact before Mark Marquez scored his win at the Saxon Ring early in the summer Honda were actually running close to being given the concessions for that are awarded to the much smaller teams to try and get them up onto a level with the factory teams now that is something we thought we'd never say about the HRC Repsol Honda team and 
there is a there's a whole new discussion here about the the cultural things and you know we have other japanese factories in uh, in the championship we have suzuki and we have yamaha but there is for honda there seems to be an an integral stubbornness in belief which can be a very positive thing being 100% trusting in your technology can be very positive indeed but also being able to admit certain failings and change them that has been a, a, an issue with not just Honda but many factories. But I think that's the to to see Mark Marquez score more world championships or to score more Grand Prix wins would be a good start. Um, we're, I think that Honda is just going to have to come back a little bit. Also, as we have seen, you cannot put all your eggs in one basket. And if Mark Marquez becomes injured or decides to go and ride for somebody else, which that reality is something we couldn't have re- really considered a couple of years ago. But I think there's only going to be so many races where Mark Marquez sees a Ducati d- disappear away in the distance in front of him until he thinks, do you know, I might give that a go. And that is when Honda really will be left uh, kind of high and dry. So I think it's it's uh, it's been a pr- it's been an issue for years having an issue having a Honda motorbike that will fit all of the other riders, but. For now, we shall see how that goes. Now, last point on the uh, MotoGP uh, paddock is tyres. Uh, interestingly, there is seems to be, uh, with this Michelin tyre that came in in 2016, we've just come to the end, actually. We're just coming to the end of the first five-year contract, which has, in fact, been re-signed uh, that Michelin will be the sole supplier to MotoGP until 2026. However there is more and more concern and complaint within the paddock about the kind of random nature of the way the Michelin tyre behaves and the way that it, it can uh, go off during a during a race. And it, it, it in one way, it's given an incredibly random, uh, an incredibly random approach and a random feeling to MotoGP where you have different riders winning all the time. Now, from an entertainment perspective, that can be absolutely fantastic because you just don't know who's going to win every week. That is a very positive thing, and we see in other, uh, we see in other championships when that's not the case how it can really be detrimental. However, the only thing is is that it often struggle to build a championship story. Uh, because if you have this completely random nature where you have one rider winning by miles one week and then out of the points the next, it's very difficult to build up a narrative to the fans of what is actually going on. We're almost in an era of MotoGP where every Grand Prix weekend is like a a one-off event in itself. The battle for the championship is incredibly difficult to follow because, well, it's a different battle every week, so it depends kind of what what you're looking for, really. Um, I don't. I think it's hard to tell whether there's some riders, of course, will not have ridden on the Bridgestone tire, which was 2015 and before. Um, a lot of them will have only known the Michelin tire, but it'll be interesting to see if the philosophy of the Michelin tire changes over the next five years, or whether this is the style of MotoGP that we're, we're going to see. You know, one example would be Fabio Quartararo. A couple of weeks ago at Silverstone, he disappears off into the distance and wins by quite a, quite a considerable margin. Uh, at Aragon, faded back to 8th place and actually had to fight really hard to stay in 8th place, and he was 16 seconds back on the leaders. Now, that is an incredible delta uh, in time. 
for for from one weekend to the next. Um, two very different racetracks, yes. Two very different sets of temperature, yes. But we've seen, you know, we were very cool at Silverstone, surprise, and we were very hot at Aragon. But we've seen Quartararo win in hot conditions before, so it's uh, it is a bizarre one. And it's one to watch for the rest of the MotoGP season and indeed from 2022 uh, onwards. So that's MotoGP. Uh, we will be talking on the next episode of Peter Mackay's Motorcycle Mutterings about the race at Misano, Rossi's penultimate home race. He's actually going to have two home races at Misano before he retires at the end of the year. Uh, but we'll talk about that on the next episode of Peter Mackay's Motorcycle Mutterings. Let's move on to World Superbikes because phew, World Superbike this year, it has been the certainly the best season I can remember since uh, Tom Sykes and uh, Sylvain Guntoli went for the title in, in World Superbikes. This has been absolutely superb. We've seen, again, very much the established uh, star in Johnny Ray being challenged much more fiercely than ever by a young pretender, top rack Razgati Oglu. And the battle between these two men all season long, and indeed Scott Redding, who is just dropping off the scent a little bit now. He's just a little bit too far back in the points. But Scott Redding on the Ducati has, has won a lot of races as well and has been super uh, to watch too. But we've got a head-to-head battle now between Jonathan Ray on the Kawasaki and Top Rack Razgati Oglu. Jonathan Ray, of course has won six world superbike titles in a row uh, and is threatening for a seventh. Top Rack Razgati Oglu has never won the World Superbike Championship, but this is by far his best chance. Now, uh, Johnny Ray on the on his trusty Kawasaki ZX-10R, uh, which he was, he's been with the Kawasaki factory team since 2015, and has won every year since on that bike. Um, Top Rack um, initially started his World Superbike career in the Kawasaki fold, albeit for an independent team, but then progressed, or then moved across to rival factory Yamaha. And there's a story there which we will get onto in a moment. But the last weekend for World Superbikes, Top Rack Razgati Oglu and Jonathan Ray came into the race uh, the race meeting at Magnicourt in France absolutely even uh, Stevens on points and Top Rack Razgati Oglu absolutely loves it at Magnicourt that's where he got his first World Superbike win and on the road Top Rack Razgati Oglu won all three races the feature race on the Saturday the sprint race on the Sunday morning and the feature race on the Sunday afternoon however that is not the whole story of the meeting. Far, far from it. In the feature races, Top Razgati Oglu was able to just get a little bit of a gap on uh, Jonathan Ray. But in the sprint race, my goodness me, the sprint races really have been the exclusive playground of Jonathan Ray. No matter what's been thrown at him, he seemed to just win these sprint races on the Sunday mornings just with... Aplomb, incredible. Um, and of course, by winning the sprint race, you get a, a smaller amount of points, uh, but also pole position for the Sunday feature race. Now, in Sunday morning's feature race, sorry, sprint race between Top Rack Razgati Oglu and Jonathan Ray, we saw one of the most fantastic wheel-to-wheel battles you'll see in motorcycle racing. Absolutely superb. Two men 
at the peak of their powers, both with their own attributes of where they're where they're on top, and it was impossible to call until we came down to the final lap. Now on the final lap, going around a fast left-hander into a very, very sharp right-hander, Jonathan Ray made an overtaking manoeuvre on top rack, top rack Razgati Oglu, and it looked like he was going to take the win, but top rack managed later on in the lap to just pinch it at the last moment. On the cooling down lap, top rack and Jonathan patting each other on the back, fist bumps, way, you're great, no, I'm great, no, you're great, I'm great, no, I'm great. Um, all, all very friendly, all very convivial, lovely. They get into the park Fermi again, pats on the backs, and you think, oh, this is great, brilliant respect. And they were riding so close together, maybe tiny bits of contact here or there, but very minor, but tough, hard, thoroughly entertaining racing. Brilliant, absolutely fantastic. However, this is at the point where it just starts to go pretty ugly indeed. The World Superbike World Feed cameras picked up Jonathan Ray whispering into the ear of his crew chief, Pera Reba. Now, it, there have been uh, subtitles put to this uh, piece of footage saying that it was, you know, trying to guess what it was that Jonathan Ray was saying to Pera Reba. You could take a strong guess of what he was saying, but we'll, ne- we'll never know. But anyway, the the sequence of events were that within half an hour of the race finish Kawasaki put in the Jonathan Ray's team put in a protest against top rack Razgati Oglu. Why did they do that? Well unfortunately this is a, a phrase that you will hear in lots of types of motorsport. Track limits and it's something that's a horribly thorny debate across all types of two and indeed four wheeled motorsport. And basically the rules are in world superbike that if you exceed track limits which is signified when you go from there's a a white line painted on the edge of the track and if you exceed that you go onto a green painted area or indeed the grass verge but usually there is a green painted area for seemingly for safety purposes but that's part of the debate but on the corner that jonathan ray made his pass on top rack rasgati oglu he had how he spotted it. I have never known. He said, "I think Toprak ex- exceeded track limits. Go and check the footage and report it to the stewards." And the rules are that if you exceed track limits on the last lap, you are severely punished and you have to give up a place. So, of course, that would mean that Toprak would lose the win and Jonathan Ray would gain the win. So, protest goes in. Hours and hours go by, the race meeting carries on, Toprak starts from pole in the feature race and wins the feature race. But then, later on, in the during what well, I think during the Supersport 300 race, later on, uh, the word comes in that Toprak Razgatioglu had been given a penalty and Jonathan Ray had, in fact, inherited the win and Toprak would be demoted to second position. Now, looking at the footage... Uh, or a still shot of the footage which for if you've never seen it pop onto press pause and go onto social media <laughs> just type in top rack or Jonathan Ray or protest that up it will come and if 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 top rack's tire bear in mind a motorcycle tire the contact patch on the road is about the rear tire is about the size of a credit card roughly uh, and it's very hard to determine whether it's actually even touching the green line at all, and if so, it's a couple of millimeters. The other thing is, is but the other thing is as well, of course, is that Jonathan made an overtaking maneuver, so there definitely wasn't an advantage gained. However, the way that the rules are written, 
that the that was that was what was decided that Toprak had exceeded track limits and therefore had to be penalised for it. Now, the it's it's such a difficult topic this one because the spirit when you're dealing at world championship level and there's millions of pounds being invested, which is the case for both of these riders, both Toprak Razgatioglu and Jonathan Ray will be on very good salaries from their respective employers at Yamaha and Kawasaki. The teams, the fact these are factory teams, Kawasaki and Yamaha, they are putting in a lot of money to succeed and to win world championships. So this is not club racing we're talking about. You know, the spirit and the camaraderie is uh, kind of irrelevant. Um, I, I wish it wasn't like that. I really, I really wish it wasn't. I really wish that Jonathan Ray said, yeah, okay, I saw you step over there, but I passed you anyway, and that's the end of that. But when there's that much at stake, you this is, this is what, if there's an advantage to be gained, you can be sure that any race team in any category of motorsport in the world will try and um, try and exploit that advantage. Now, was it in this, uh, you know, is it in good taste? Definitely not. Is it good sportsmanship? Definitely not. But is it something that the other team would do? Probably, if they were really, if they were really honest about it. I think the precedent it sets is terrible because now what you're going to have is you're going to have teams of people in the garages in every single one of the top teams studying every last frame of footage to try and find examples of when either in the past of when uh, these uh, things have happened which of course wouldn't make a difference now because you have to protest within half an hour of the race finishing but in future you're going to have in that during the race and indeed the during that 30 minute period after the checkered flag drops you're going to have teams of people studying desperately trying to find a point where the uh, other one rival is, is stepped across track limits, no matter how minor it would be. And this particular example from Magnicure at the weekend, it could not be any more minor than it, it already was. So what precedent did it set? Not a good one. What does it mean for the championship going forward? Well, if we thought that this was going to be a friendly battle between Top Rack and Johnny and there was going to be great respect and pats on the back, forget that that's out the window now it's war now uh and one thing about top rack rasgatioglu is is like if he if he likes you and if he uh you know if if he doesn't have anything against you he's still a very 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 hard racer he loves hard racing he loves it when it gets a little bit rough and tumble um and so imagine him when it becomes a little bit better. All of the team around him, the Yamaha team run by Crescent uh, in the UK, uh, they're all going to be livid. They're all going to be furious about this and they're going to want to get one over on Kawasaki. So going into the weekend at Catalonia this weekend, it's, it's going to be the the war of words is going to be going because you can be sure that the press will be all over Top Rack. They'll be all over Jonathan Ray desperate to get a comment on what they thought of the situation i'm sure they'll both try and brush it off um but it will really start to come out i think when we get racing at the weekend of course the great thing about world superbikes is three races two at feature length and one at shorter sprint length so there's a lot to shake out over this weekend and i i for one cannot wait i really hope it doesn't boil over to the point where you know, people taking on silly moves and, and it gets dangerous or more dangerous than it already needs to be. But 
I think we're going to see the gloves come off big time between top right Razgati Oglu and uh, Jonathan Ray. Now, before we move on finally to British Superbikes, just wanted to have a little bit of a uh, a side anecdote about the politics behind this particular incident and the motivation for Top Rack Razgati Oglu. Jonathan Ray doesn't necessarily have anything to prove. He's you know won six world championships. He's the greatest superbike rider of all time. That's not up for debate. That's just a statistical fact. But Top Rack Razgati Oglu is he's got it all to do. Um, what we must remember is as well for Top Rock Razgati Oglu is that actually he should have been Jonathan Ray's teammate in 2020 when he had a brilliant year with the private um, independent Kawasaki team in 2019. Top Rock Razgati Oglu was prime to be moved up to the factory team alongside Jonathan Ray in 2020. However, an event out in Japan changed all of that. Japan, as for regular listeners to the Peter Mackay Motorsport Podcast, will know that I'm an, I absolutely love the Suzuka 8-hour race in Japan. Sadly, over 2020 and sadly in 2021 as well, we have not had a Suzuka 8-hour race because of the global pandemic. But the Suzuka 8-hour, as the name suggests, an 8-hour long race held in the very heat of Japanese summer normally and usually in late July, so stiflingly hot and for the Japanese factories, for Kawasaki, for Yamaha, for Honda, and for Suzuki as well, winning the Suzuki 8 hour corporately is a bigger deal than winning the MotoGP World Championship. That's how important that one-day race in Suzuka is. Um, and Kawasaki had not won it for years, but in 2019, they had the strongest chance to do so. They had Jonathan Ray on board. They had Leon Haslam on board and they had Top Rack Razgati Oglu. And it was very, very unusual for a Japanese factory not to field one Japanese rider. That is something that is almost written in stone that, you know, there is at least one Japanese rider on the team. Um, you know, for example, Katz Nakasuga uh, races with, with Yamaha and usually Honda would sometimes have a completely Japanese uh, lineup as as well. But for Kawasaki, they, they, they went all in. And this was their big assault to try and win the Suzuka 8 hour. Uh, so Jonathan Ray and Leon Haslam, two riders who had won the race before, they were relaying back and forward. And the stints in the Suzuka 8 hour, about an hour in length, riding any motorbike in any condition for an hour is exhausting. Um, but to do... A 200 horsepower superbike and a heavy one at that, an endurance racing bike is a bit heavier, heavier motorbike in nearly 40 degree heat with massive humidity is extraordinary. So after an hour, the rider is absolutely beaten and they often have to go and take an ice bath and take on uh, fluids and, uh, you know, try and recover. But normally most teams will relay between three riders an hour each. But the Suzuki 8 hour in 2019, Kawasaki relayed between... Jonathan Ray and Leon Haslam and then back to Jonathan Ray again missing out top rack and this went on throughout the race and as the race went on top rack Razgati Oglu sat in the sat in the garage watching all this going on desperate to get going and as the race got to the final stages it became clear that top rack Razgati Oglu was not going to get out on the bike whatsoever now this 
did not go down well at all with Tobrak Razgatioglu. You also have to remember that Tobrak's manager, Keenan Safoglu, won five World Supersport Championships for Kawasaki. So Toprak went home from this, went flew all the way out to Japan, all did all the testing, did all the PR, all that stuff, never got to turn a racing lap. And that went down like a lead balloon. And that he went home absolutely furious and signed a contract with Yamaha. So keep that in mind as this World Superbike Championship runs to its crescendo. Toprak has a score to settle, not only from his own point of view, but he also, I'm pretty sure, he's quite keen to get one over on Kawasaki, particularly after what happened at Magni Coeur. It has been a long time since we've been able to talk about such excitement in the World Superbike Championship. I, for one, am so excited to see what happens to the rest of the season. You can catch, certainly here in the UK, you can catch all the action on the on Eurosport or on the Eurosport player. So I think it's like four or five pounds a month or something and it gets all the Eurosport channels well worth investing in. Check it out, it's a cracker. Another thing you can watch on, on Eurosport is British Superbikes, the top domestic superbike championship in the world. And at Silverstone last weekend, the British Superbike Championship decided the top eight in the championship that would go into the final phase of the season in what is known as the showdown. So if you don't get into the top eight in the championship, by this stage, you are out. So only the top eight can go for the championship points. And so far this season, I mean, the the standout performers, Jason O'Halloran and Taryn McKenzie on the McCams Yamaha R1s have been a step above the rest. Oh, the level of dominance that we haven't really seen since the Ducati V4R Panigale came came on board uh, a couple of years ago, and when Josh Brooks and then uh, Scott Redding won won the championship. Uh, so, and Jason O'Halloran particularly has just raised to a level which we all kind of knew he had, but he's just never quite had the fortune to put everything together. But he has had a dominant season on that Yamaha. R1. So Jason O'Halloran and Tara McKenzie easily locked into the uh, the championship showdown before we even got to Silverstone last weekend. But there was a lot of other riders who were really on the bubble. Riders like Danny Buchan on the Cinetic BMW and Josh Brooks, reigning champion Josh Brooks on the Ducati V4R run by Vision Track and Paul Bird Motorsport. And Josh Brooks, obviously winning the championship last year, then came out this season and his pace just disappeared. It was the most bizarre thing. was really, really struggling to even get into the top 10 and nobody could understand why. There are rumours, or there were rumours circling around that he'd had a crash on a motocross bike uh, in the off-season and was a lot more injured than people gave credit for, but I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if that is all of the story, but uh, was being completely outperformed by his teammate, Christian Eden, and indeed the other Ducati, the Oxford Products Ducati of Tommy Bridewell. But Josh Brooks came into the final round uh, of the regular season at Silverstone really up against it, and for the defending champion not to get in the showdown would have been highly embarrassing uh, for, for all concerned. However, the one thing about Josh Brooks is he is a fighter. Uh, they, he, they used to call him Bad Boy Brooks uh, in his days when he rode for Relentless Suzuki, uh, which was quite an apt sponsor for him at the time. But uh, Josh Brooks is a gritty competitor. He's one of the best riders in British Superbike history. And 
just when he was under pressure, he pulled it out of the bag after what has been, to be honest, a terrible season by his standards. Um, got a fourth place on Saturday and then two podiums on Sunday and that was just enough to drag him into the showdown fight. Now, of course, with the way that this, the point system works, uh, yes, Josh Brooks is in the showdown, but he is probably a little bit too far behind to challenge for the title. But to be in the showdown, I think, is after what's happened, I think is a, a pretty positive outcome. However, the, the big story from the weekend, uh, apart from those trying to get their way into uh, the, the showdown battle, was, well, a pretty high-profile accident between the two McCam's Yamaha riders. Now, we this is not the first time that we've seen this between Jason O'Halloran and Taran McKenzie for McCam's Yamaha. We saw it a couple of years ago in the opening round of the season at the Silverstone National Circuit where uh, Taran McKenzie made a move up the inside of his teammate. They made contact, Jason O'Halloran went down and Taran McKenzie went on to take the win, which was latterly taken off him. Now, this was a slightly different uh, a slightly different scenario. Coming into the, the closing lap, it was on the last lap actually, uh, coming into the final part of the Silverstone circuit, going left at Brooklands underneath the British Racing Drivers Club and then into the kind of omega-shaped Luffield corners, looking left and then right all the way around to Woodkit into the chequered flag. And Taran McKenzie made a move going into Brooklands, made the move clean, got the move done on Jason O'Halloran, and just as he picked up the throttle to head towards Luffield, he just asked for a little bit too much power from that cross-plane crank Yamaha R1 engine, and whoop, it just, it just, you just saw the rear tire move, front end gripped, and whoosh, over the, over the head, over the handlebars he went. Bike goes down, and poor old Jason O'Halloran, the luckless Jason O'Halloran, had nowhere to go. Taran McKenzie's R1 bike just lying there in the middle of the track and O'Halloran could do nothing but plough straight into it and he came off as well. So both riders down. Glenn Irwin went on to win the race, which actually, uh, given that he he finished 7th in the, the showdown race, very nearly, that win was very, very helpful to get Glenn Irwin into the showdown. But the two McCams Yamaha has, they're lying there with two destroyed bikes and two riders um very, very lucky not to get away with serious injury. There was they weren't completely unscathed, mind you. They were pretty battered and bruised going into Sunday's races. But the tenacity of these two men, Taran McKenzie from Scotland and Jason O'Halloran from Australia. Absolutely extraordinary. They come out on Sunday with <laughs> McKenzie winning race one and Jason O'Halloran winning race two. That shows you, A, the tenacity of these two riders and the grit and determination, but also the the friendliness of the package that they have in that Yamaha one. You just watch the... It's almost like a miniature version of the Yamaha MotoGP bike. It's not necessarily the fastest in a straight line, but it's... Uh, my goodness me, does it carry corner speed like there's like there's nothing else on the grid that can carry the corner speed like this Yamaha. And Jason O'Halloran and Taron McKenzie have deployed that to devastating effect and they go into the, the showdown phase uh, very much the favourites with Jason O'Halloran holding a 31 point advantage over his teammates so it's very much Jason O'Halloran to lose but there is a lot of racing to go so to run through then the showdown 8 will be Jason O'Halloran, Taron McKenzie both on Yamahas, 
the Ducatis of Christian Eden and Tommy Bridewell, the BMWs of Peter Hickman and Danny Buchan, the Honda of Glen Irwin, and of course the Ducati of Josh Brooks. Notable mention for Peter Hickman, who gets into the showdown once again. A brand new team, FHO uh, Motorsport, run by Faye Ho from Macau who started up a brand new team this year, uh, which is kind of, well, morphed out of the Smiths BMW team. And for a new team to get in up there in the top five in the championship of the regular season, it's a mighty fine achievement. The one thing that surprised me, though, is there's no Kawasaki in the showdown. Of course, the, the main Kawasaki team, the FS3 team, uh, running with uh, Lee Jackson, who has a lot of experience in British superbikes. I'm surprised Lee didn't make it in. And Rory Skinner, a local rider here in Scotland, who uh, really impressed on his first day, uh, who has really impressed on his first season in British Superbikes, getting on the podium uh, at the, his home round at Knock Hill, which we were all very, very happy to see. But Rory just missing out on the showdown by a small number of points, but has really raised a lot of eyebrows in the British Superbike paddock. Of course, he marched to the British Supersport Championship last season, but the Superbike, to climb on a Superbike at 19 years old, with the amount of power, the weight, everything, Rory has really taken on that challenge very well and it's not not crashed very often he's just got down to the job and it's just getting better all the time and in a series as competitive with the depth of british superbikes is mighty impressive indeed what will he do next well there's a lot of rumors of where rory skinner will go next perhaps moto 2 and perhaps world superbikes we don't know but we will find out in due course i am sure I do hope you've enjoyed this episode of uh, Peter Mackay's Motorbike Mutterings. We will be back next with Peter Mackay's Rally Ramblings after the uh, to talk about the Acropolis Rally, Cali Rovenpera, and looking ahead to the Finnish Rally and indeed the driver market and what on earth is going on in the World Rally Championship. But thanks so much for listening to this episode. Don't forget to subscribe on your chosen podcast provider uh, just click subscribe and you'll never miss an episode your device will remind you when a new episode of the peter mckay motorsport podcast comes up thanks for listening and see you next time <laughs>